0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at Byheart.com.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: I'm Ava Santina, Politics Joe's political correspondent. This week, I spoke to former Labour leader and prominent Stop the War campaigner Jeremy Corbyn. We talked about why he's calling for a ceasefire over a humanitarian pause, who he thinks could be the next government in Palestine, and whether he'll be throwing his hat into the ring for the Mayor of London job.
3: Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one? It's the Politics Joe podcast.
2: Hello, Jeremy. How are you?
3: Very well, thank you, and lovely to be here.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you for coming in. Um, Well, let's start, let's speak broadly to start with. Let's talk about your position. So, you're calling for a ceasefire, which is at odds with what the parliamentary party, the Labour parliamentary party, are calling for. They'd like a humanitarian pause. Can you talk to me a little bit about that distinction?
3: I'm not quite sure what they mean by humanitarian pause. Uh, when Netanyahu's asked about it, he talks about a humanitarian pause for an hour, uh, and no more than that. Um, others talk about something much longer, and indeed the words first came from the Compromise uh, Security Council motion that Brazil put forward. Brazil put forward one calling for a ceasefire. That was objected to by many others. This is a couple of weeks ago. And... Um, the compromise was they called for a humanitarian pause without being specific but that was too much for israel and the united states so the united states vetoed it, and it that didn't happen i think what they're talking about is something quite short term but that means then that uh, it's a humanitarian pause for letting some aid in possibly some hostages out One hope so And then resume the bombing. Well, that's just not good enough. And uh, what we have to do is stop the bombing. 10,000 people have died. 4,000 children included in that. And a um, ceasefire has to mean what it says, which is a ceasefire agreed by both sides. Now, those that are making the call for it clearly have some means of communication, probably via Egypt with Hamas. So there would be a, a ceasefire. And you can then start some kind of negotiations on what's happening for the future, but crucially, you can get aid in there. Look, I'm getting calls from people in Gaza who are starving, they have no medicine. There are doctors trying to perform operations without anaesthetic. There are thousands of people hanging around in Rafa hoping to get across the border because they have either foreign passports or connection with people living outside. And I was talking to somebody yesterday whose father had managed to get to Cairo um, but only he was allowed out the rest of his family were told to stay and so it's a devastating situation on a personal level that people are in there has to be a ceasefire and I really cannot understand what it is about the British government and indeed the leadership of the Labour Party they're not prepared to say look ceasefire now in order to protect life
2: well, the argument for that would be that, you know, you had a Hamas representative just last week reveling in repeating the attacks of October 7th, you know, again and again and again. Look,
3: the attacks on October the 7th were evil and wrong in every way and have to be totally condemned and Hamas have to be totally condemned for doing them. And um, I was talking, listening rather, to Dr. Mustafa Abu this morning on BBC radio and he was making the point that he is no supporter of Hamas in any way. And I know Dr. Bagouti extremely well. And uh, he said, but you've got to recognise that Hamas didn't come from nowhere. It didn't exist 30 years ago. It didn't exist when the occupation began. It's a product of the occupation.
2: But so why do you think then Bernie Sanders is reticent to, to call for a ceasefire?
3: I can't understand why that is the case. Um, I'm disappointed I hoped that Bernie Sanders would be one of those in the USA that would support the call for a ceasefire. He is a very powerful voice uh, in the Senate and uh, obviously within the Democratic Party, albeit he's an independent senator.
2: I mean, it's surprising, isn't it? Because you would think that your politics would align on that.
3: Well, I get along very well with Bernie Sanders. We know each other quite well. We've met many times and talked and so on. And... um, On economic and social justice issues on power of global corporations and environmental issues we very much agreed I am surprised that he's taken this line because in the past he's been quite critical of uh, the huge amount of US military support for Israel and I hoped that that would continue into recognizing the need for a ceasefire there are many people in the u.s that are demonstrating in support for ceasefire look are we just going to be spectators in the killing of thousands and thousands of more people and in reality what netanyahu said yesterday is the truth behind it all netanyahu said in future we will take control of the security situation in gaza i read that as reoccupying gaza now they already have gone as far south as gaza city Um, the Israeli troops. The bombing has obviously gone over the whole of the Gaza Strip, and um, what I see is a reoccupation, the not-so-gradual expulsion of the Palestinian population from Gaza, and the creation of a new Gaza Strip in the Sinai. And in 20 years' time, we'll be back here again with exactly the same thing, with Israel claiming its right to defend the Gaza Strip. I hope I'm wrong. I absolutely hope I'm wrong. But... Unfortunately, all the signs from the Israeli military and the Israeli government move in that direction.
2: So, a couple of things I want to pick up on there. So when you, when you talked about, you know, are we just going to be spectators on the killing that is mm. going on in the Gaza Strip? I mean, on the flip side of that, the argument against a ceasefire is that we could again be spectators to another attack by Hamas in Israel.
3: Well, a ceasefire has to be the participation of both sides. It's not that long ago that people in um, Mossad were saying that there has to be talks between the Israeli government and Hamas. There has to be some way forward. Um, whether those are happening or not, I don't know. But quite clearly, at, on previous occasions, Operation Cast Lead and other times, there have been agreed ceasefires between Israel and Hamas. And those ceasefires have been broken by the. Egyptian government 10,000 already dead 1400 Israelis already dead are we just going to be spectators watching these numbers go up and up and up and continue Supplying weapons arms and everything else that Israel needs particularly from the United States uh, Or are we going to play some serious part in this but I also say that what's being ignored is the situation on the West Bank Israeli forces have increased their presence on the West Bank. Some villages have been um, driven away, the whole community driven away. And I found um, Mick Bowman last week, he's a guy from Newcastle, who is very passionate about the needs of Palestinian people and walked from Newcastle to Palestine. Except the last bit from Turkey when he had to get a plane to go to Amman and then go into the West Bank. And he was at a village in the Hebron Hills. And I said, what's going on though, Mick? He said, well, Israeli army have surrounded the village and are now systematically going house to house and evicting people and throwing them out. And this is all done because the world's media are not watching because they're only watching what's going on in Gaza.
2: Right, and so to, co- to combat that as well. So let's talk about opening... That dialogue with Hamas that you were just speaking about there. You know, you've been calling for this for, what the best part of a decade. And if you don't mind me saying, I think you've been ridiculed for it as well on quite a number of occasions. I mean, do you think there's a sense now? Well, do you personally feel vindicated by these calls? It's not
3: about me personally. It's about the undying demand of a lot of people to bring about peace and a peace with justice for the Palestinian people. I've been nine times in Israel, in the West Bank, and in Gaza. And I've been in Jordan, and I've been in Syria, and I've been in Lebanon, and I've been in Egypt. I've visited the undying misery of refugee camps in all of those countries. And uh, the Palestinians who've been 70 years in refugee camps, um, do they feel angry? Yeah, they do. They do. Do people in Gaza feel angry when they listen to their grandparents or who were driven out of their homes to make, make way for Israel? Yeah, they do. And if we don't understand that sense of hurt and also understand the feelings of a lot of people in Israel, yes, they feel a lack of security because of hostility, but there's also a lot of people in Israel that recognize this cannot go on forever. We cannot just be this tough security state continually at war with the Palestinian neighbors. They recognize there has to be a change. So you talk to people in Bethlehem, talk to people in the various human rights groups. They have a very different view. We're not hearing that view on our media.
2: So do you think that there is, I mean the potential to open a dialogue with Hamas. I mean, there'd be large swathes of the country here who would be be frightened hearing that, right? You've got a prescribed terrorist organisation and the, the British government are potentially going to open a conversation Listen, with Listen, it's
3: not going to happen tomorrow. Uh, a ceasefire would be the first stage of it. There then has to be a dialogue with the people of Gaza, many of whom do not support Hamas. I've been in Gaza and I've talked to people there who absolutely not supporters of Hamas, but uh, live there um, and recognize that um, there's been huge problems for them. And so it has to be about bringing about a ceasefire. Otherwise, what happens? We've got 21st century weapons raining down on people's homes, killing them and their children. Their last moment of life for many people will be trying to shelter in a... Seriously damaged, dangerous building, and a bomb comes down, and that's it mm-hmm. and that's happened to ten thousand people
2: It's possible that the IDF eradicate Hamas, and people are allowed to cross back through the Rafa crossing and life begins again in Gaza I mean if that is the the situation who who who's in charge now of Gaza who's running who's running the region
3: Well, nobody is running Gaza at the moment Hamas um, government uh, i would imagine hardly exists in the sense of chaos that's there. And the people that I've talked to have come out of Gaza, just said there's complete chaos. There's been riots every time a food truck is seen. There's desperation to get medical care. Uh, we've got more water on this table than most Palestinians get for a whole day. That for a whole day, including washing and everything else. Um, that's the misery of that life. That they've got. So um, I assume the um, modus operandi for the future has to be more resources for the UN Relief and Works Agency, which is grossly underfunded, in order to continue providing education and health care and food supplies. Many people in Gaza rely completely on the UN for their existence and have done their entire life. I've never forgotten the first time I went to Gaza would have been in the 90s met this uh, woman in her house she was about the same age as my mother and i asked her about her life and she said um we came from what is now tel aviv um in 1948 and we've lived here ever since um i've relied on the un all my life i've got three sons one i don't know where he is the other's in prison the other's gone abroad and she said this is our life we're under occupation this was before the withdrawal from Gaza Um, and life is hell. And that was her whole story of her life. And you think of the equivalent woman of that age in Britain, be proud of her children, proud of what she'd done, somewhere to live and all that. And it's just that whole life cycle of oppression coming about from the occupation.
2: The issue there though, the UN, yes, they do incredible work, and they are holding up what is left of the region. But they're not—they're not government. So, if you are to move into a space where Hamas are hypothetically eradicated, I mean, truly, who well, is going to? Well, you have to build—you
3: be... have to build up um, a basis for it through um, development of local government and all the rest of it. But how do you do are... that, though? Is
2: that Western intervention? I mean, well, well, what's the? Well, you
3: have to do it with the support of the people of the place and the area and the point that Barghouti was making this morning very powerfully was that we continue to talk about Gaza as though it's somewhere different from the rest of Palestine and not united with the rest of Palestine um, and uh, the Israeli border activities have made it very difficult for people to travel between Gaza and the West Bank, and that was the intention behind it. And his view is that there has to be a unity of it. Now, when the last election took place, which is, what, almost 20 years ago now, <clears throat> there was then a election campaign in both Gaza and the West Bank. And um, I was an observer of that election, both on the West Bank and in Gaza. And the candidates were from all parties. I mean, the dominant parties were Fatah and Hamas. Hamas, one on the the Gaza Strip, Fatah, one on the West Bank.
2: Do you think it's possible to be critical of Israel without being anti-Semitic?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Anti-Semitism is just an evil. Uh, Historically, anti-Semitism has been evil. And you read the history of the treatment of Jewish people over centuries. Expulsion from Britain in the 13th century, readmittance to Britain in the 17th century um, And that sort of routine anti-semitic Language that's used in literature and in history in this country and all over Europe and then the anti-semitism towards Russian Jews when they came to Britain in 1890s ni- early 1900s and the first um, Aliens Act of I think it was 1906 which was directed against the arrival of Russian Jews into Britain and then, of course, the um, growth of anti-Semitism, particularly in France and Germany and to some extent here. Um, and then, of course, the Nazis and the Holocaust and the six million that died. I mean, it is an appalling history. And that's where anti-Semitism leads you to. And so is it possible to be critical of Israel without being um, anti-Semitic? Yes, I think it is. Um, Isaac Deutscher, a great writer, a Jewish guy who lived in Britain, great writer, particularly of history of the Soviet Union, and a very deep intellectual. I didn't know him. I knew his widow Tamara very well, and she was, uh, like him, Jewish. She had deep misgivings about Israel and its behavior, but she was proud to be a Jewish woman who wanted to see an end to all anti-Semitism. There is a whole generation of Jewish people that are critical of Israel's behavior, but nonetheless equally proud to be Jewish people. And so they should be.
0: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
2: I hear you speaking like this, and I know you've been an anti-racism campaigner for what, what your, entire, your yes. entire life. I yeah. mean, you know, you were picketing yeah. the South African embassy when the government were calling for Mandela to be hung. But, I mean, you know, why do you think there is a feeling that you allowed anti-Semitism to flourish? I
1: didn't.
3: I do not, did not, will not, never do. And it is um, awful the way in which people in the Labour Party have been treated on this. When I became leader, there was no system for dealing with egregious cases of racist behavior within the party. I set one up. I established one. I appointed Baroness Chakrabarti to do an inquiry into anti-Semitism, which she did. She proposed various systems which were acknowledged by the um, Equality and Human Rights Commission. Uh, I also discovered there was a very strange system in the Labour Party that before the General Secretary and anyone in the head office would take disciplinary action against any party members. It was referred to the leader to decide what should happen. That's simply not right. The leader should not be um, judge and jury on every case. They can't possibly know the details of every case. They can't possibly know what's going on there. And what I said was there has to be a properly independent system. And for those that have actually bothered to read the Equality and Human Rights Commission report, they will see there's an acknowledgement there that uh, the numbers of cases that were being dealt with improved, particularly after Jenny Formby became General Secretary. And it was under Ian McNichol's tutelage that the thing was pretty chaotic. And um, we were dealing with those cases. Now, we were also under... A lot of attack for allegedly allowing anti-Semitism to go on in the party. No, we were not. I do not and never would. And uh, I think, quite honestly, a lot of that was deeply unfair. And the point I was making was that there were many cases reported which simply were nonsense. There was no case. There was but there's no a case. further and there a was feeling there, though, isn't there? Well, yeah. Where did that feeling come from? Where did it come from? But people who wanted to use that to attack every other policy that I was promoting as leader of the party.
2: Let, let's talk a little bit about protests. So you, you've been very vocal on the pro-Palestinian marches. Obviously, this weekend is going to be an, a, apparently a very controversial march, but we just well, I don't see anything Day.
3: controversial about calling for peace on Armistice Day.
2: Well, <laughs> uh, that, that is the line that is delivered by Swella Braverman. Um, I mean, what do you think that's coming from? I tell you what, actually, do you know what I'd like to to know from you? So you've got this fringe element of these marches, a couple of people who turn up with pro-Hamas signs, and you've got people who have displayed threatening anti-Semitic behaviour on these marches. They're asked to
3: leave.
2: Well, yeah, and they're arrested. But do you think that there is perhaps a responsibility from the organisers to announce that they do not align themselves with that? with that
3: sentiment. The organisers have made it very clear what the march is about. It's calling for a ceasefire. The organisers have made that extremely clear. All of the marches have speakers from the Jewish community, from Jewish Voice for Labour, various other groups, Jewish Socialist Group and many others speak there, and that is always the case. And so I think the responsibility for this really lies with the British government's approach to this. And suddenly, dumping down on everybody that's actually calling for a ceasefire, as as though somehow or other it's controversial. Surely it's an obvious thing to do. You
2: can understand the distinction where there was talk of, you know, a potential march through Golders Green, or there was a potential protest outside the Israeli embassy. Can you see the distinction where that, that would be seen as intimidatory behaviour?
3: Well, obviously, one doesn't want to be intimidatory, but one wants to also be open to all communities to take part in it. There are many, many Jewish people on the marches who take part and speak in them. And this weekend's um, demonstration, which is now going to be outside the U.S. Embassy in Battersea, or as near as one can get to it, um, has been negotiated and agreed with the police. The organizers are... Palestine Solidarity Campaign and other groups um, stop the war and so on are very experienced in organizing marches and demonstrations and uh, Whilst they might not always agree with the police they eventually reach some form of um, operational agreement to ensure the march goes ahead and they have been very large and very peaceful last weekend Trafalgar Square was as full as I've ever seen it in my life all the streets around were, had to be closed to traffic with the number of people that turned up all at three days' notice. There is a real feeling here that people want to see an end to this bombing and the killing and the conflict.
2: Why don't you think Keir Starmer and his uh, shadow front bench are marching?
3: I wish they were. You'd have to ask them that question. I can't speculate on what their motives are in it. I just think that the... Uh, Labour leadership should reflect on the feelings amongst communities all over the country who are desperate to see a ceasefire and desperate to see peace. And the numbers of people that are now extremely angry with their political representatives for not supporting a call for a ceasefire are huge. I went to my um, nearest mosque to where I live last week, and um, it was... Biggest crowd I've ever seen there.
0: Let's talk a
2: little bit about King's Speech yesterday. Mm. Easy to forget that that happened because uh, it wasn't exactly the most consequential mm,
0: King's no, Speech No, indeed. Of all the time. king
3: didn't look that happy reading it out either.
2: Are you a big fan of King <laughs> he, he was
3: sort of, he was um, droning his way through it, shall we say.
2: Yeah. Uh, w- I mean, he didn't seem too happy to be delivering the news <laughs> that there'd be new uh
3: Well, I saw him... <sighs> I'm sure I saw him stumble over those words when the government was basically performing a complete vault fast. Boris Johnson, Theresa May, and to some extent Cameron all claimed to support uh, green values and environmental sustainability. Yeah. Well, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But at least the government signed up to the Paris COP. The, uh, and the Glasgow COP um, statements and the subsequent ones, um, and then announced uh, that they're going to invest in new oil and gas um, exploitation. Um, and Johnson, indeed, after Glasgow, did claim mm-hmm. that no British financial institutional bank would ever invest ever again in fossil fuel, fossil fuel exploitation. And I asked him to repeat that in Parliament, an intervention I did on him, and he did. But I'm far from convinced that's been the case, or that any regulations have been introduced to do that. So what we're now doing is exploiting new levels of gas and oil, and as Caroline Lucas pointed out yesterday, that um, gas and oil will be exported on the global market and re-imported to Britain um, as um, the finished product partly because the oil refineries you've got can't cope with the heavy oil that's now going to be coming out of the Rosebank field. And so the crude oil will have to be exported to be um, refined and be re-imported as petrol or diesel.
2: It's being pitched as this is our ultimate transition to net zero. We need to be be aided. It
3: it seems kind of odd to me that you transition to net zero by exploiting more oil and gas rather than... um, Sustainable in a sustainable environmental system, which is about um, energy generation from sustainable sources. So it is about solar, wind, wave, um, and uh, heat pumps, and so on. It's all, it's all of that, and uh, they're not doing that, they're continuing with this. And then Sunak comes out occasionally with his rather odd uh, phrase about we're at war with the motorist, as though somehow or other. Any kind of uh, traffic restriction or um, reconfiguration of our street patterns in favour of pedestrians and cyclists is somewhere or other at war with the motorists. Well, it's not actually. It's just a sensible way of trying to make our cities more livable and the air much cleaner. Is it right that in many cities in the world, children before they start primary school have already lost 15% of their lung capacity because of pollution? Is that right? Yeah. That's what we're doing to kids. I was um, in, uh, it's, it's bad here, but it's worse in other countries as well, particularly India. In Mumbai, Delhi and Kolkata, uh, the pollution levels are utterly appalling and the levels of um, asthma and severe respiratory problems for young people are huge. Life expectancy is affected by it. We kill people through pollution. We should think about that.
2: What did you think about, I mean, having arrived in a, you know, a, a, a gilded carriage and wearing adorned in furs and, you know, all sorts. King Charles announcing that uh, the Conservatives have eased the cost of living crisis. Yeah.
3: Yes, it, it seems uh, you couldn't make up a better parody, actually, than this. All those horses uh, coming down, white, the golden coaches and the golden carriages. And there's one carriage that is just there to carry the cap of maintenance and the crown. Well, couldn't they put it in the same one as him? You know, does it really need its own carriage? And the whole thing is absurd. Um, And the cost of it is phenomenal. It's supposed to have been scaled down to what it was in the past. Uh, It was even bigger in the past.
2: Do you know how much it costs?
3: No, I don't. It's about a quarter uh, of
2: a million pounds.
3: A quarter of a million?
2: About a quarter of a million to do the the King's speech.
3: I reckon it's more than that, you know.
2: Policing and uh, the barricades. Yeah, you
3: just add up. All that police time, add up all the soldiers' time, add up the cost of the horses and all the rest of it. It's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. A
2: waste of money, you might say. Well,
3: if we are serious about a more egalitarian and equal society, we need a democracy that also fits in with that. And this is about an elected upper chamber. It is about positive rights for democracy rather than suppression of democracy. And the government's um, legislation, for example, the um, anti-BDS legislation, does the very opposite. It gives the Secretary of State the power to decide whether a locally elected representative can express a political opinion on an international matter or not. Well, what kind of world is that? We condemn, quite rightly, authoritarian regimes around the world. We should be a bit more cautious about what we're doing here.
2: King's Speech also gave um, Starmer the opportunity to walk alongside Sunak, and I think they had a little, a little um, joke to you know, share between them. Yeah, but, you yeah. know, who was, the, um, who was the worst prime minister you had to walk next to? Well,
3: I walked alongside um, Cameron, uh, David Cameron, Theresa May, and Boris Johnson. Um, Theresa May is the most straight. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? Fine, thank you. That's about it. There is no... There is no chit-chat. Cameron, you can't stop him yabbering on. What's the matter with you? We're just walking for a few minutes from the Commons to the Lords. Um, And Johnson uh, tries to engage in conversation, but as you'd imagine with the sort of butterfly mind that Johnson's got, he never waits for the answer. He moves on to the next thing. Uh, the, the one thing he said to me was, when we were walking into the House of Lords chamber Chamberlain, he, sa- he sort of said, like, this, you'd get rid of this place, wouldn't you? So I just said, well, I'm glad you read my speeches. <laughs> he said, what would you replace it with? I said, um, pretty obviously, something elected. Hmm. That could be a problem, couldn't it? I said, what's the matter with you?
2: <laughs> I imagine that's not the first time you thought that while speaking to Boris Johnson. <laughs>
3: No, he is somebody <laughs> whose mind is um, often racing ahead of the subject in hand. I've got well, to ask, thats very generous.
2: It is very generous, actually. But I do have to ask you. Speaking of former mayors of London, are, are you going to be? Are you going to be uh, gracing London with a nomination?
3: I don't know. See what happens.
2: Thinking about it,
3: a lot of people have approached me. So I mean, yes, of course. But I, what I really want to see is. Um, a much more radical alternative to this government. We cannot go forward with the idea of accepting these levels of poverty, these levels of inequality, these levels of injustice in this country or anywhere else. We cannot go on demonising refugees and asylum seekers, restricting free speech and liberties, and just assume that all is well. We have to be a seriously democratic society, and that means equality of opportunity, proper funding of education, proper quality housing. Those are the issues that I'm absolutely passionate about. And that's what I spend my life doing.
2: Maybe you've thought about you might have more agency as mayor of London, different set of budgets.
3: You sound like all the people I talk to all the time.
2: Oh, sorry. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you want more, head to the Politics Joe YouTube channel, where you'll find this week's podcast, coverage of recent blockades outside Israeli arms factories, and an interview with the editor of the Jewish Chronicle, Jake Wallace Simons.